up a company pin Cause you know where that'll get you dear I don't go fishing off the company pin There's nothing but heartbreak where the boss from hell Nothing but heartbreak where the boss from hell from the Center for Mark Twain Studies at Elmira College, I'm Matt Siebold. In the 1890s, nearly a decade after Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, Mark Twain published in rapid succession two sequels. With the first, Tom Sawyer Abroad, he had hoped to save his old publishing house, which filed for bankruptcy just two days after the novel was published. And with the second, Tom Sawyer Detective, he ingratiated himself to his new publisher, Harper Brothers. Both were commercial successes, though often derided by critics, and Twain himself admits to being ashamed of them. In the midst of the most severe depression in U.S. history up to that point, Twain and his publishers rightly bet that American readers would wish to re-enter the world of the St. Petersburg boys, Huck and Tom, no matter how dark and dystopian Twain chose to make that world. U.S. publishers had discovered the resilient power of franchises based on existing IP. This is the most conventional way of describing our present mass cultural moment, the franchise era the current campaign in the streaming wars, during which streaming platforms are presumed to live and die by their tentpole franchises, the big-budget dramas usually set in fantasy or sci-fi worlds, whose fictive canons allegedly provide the foundation for countless televisual stories, though, given how many of these wildly expensive series have recently died in development, it may be reasonable to question that conventional wisdom. But this fall was undeniably the peak of franchise TV thus far, with the premiere of two of the most anticipated and most expensive television series of all time, Amazon's Rings of Power and HBO's House of the Dragon. Both shows were enormously popular during their inaugural seasons, but HBO and Amazon are betting on even better things to come, as the expanding stable of series based in the fantastical worlds first imagined by George R.R. R. Martin and J.R.R. R. Tolkien operate as magnets, attracting subscribers to their platforms, much as Star Wars and the Marvel Cinematic Universe have spurred the rapid growth of Disney+. To discuss these series today, as well as a somewhat quieter but nevertheless popular new Star Wars series, Andor, both as assets and artworks, I am joined by three veterans of the Los Angeles Review of Books, Aaron Beatty, Michelle Chihara, and Sarah Mesley. For the final three seasons of HBO's Game of Thrones, Aaron and Sarah co-authored the popular episode recaps for LARB's Dear Television section, as well as wrote about other tentpole fare like Hulu's The Handmaid's Tale, Marvel's WandaVision, and Netflix's Stranger Things. Aaron is currently editor of the Stanford Social Innovation Review, while Sarah is associate professor of writing at University of Southern California. She is also co-founder of Avidly and series editor for NYU's Avidly Reads. Our third guest, familiar to regular listeners from her three previous appearances in episodes about the GameStop flash crash, Netflix's The Chair and The Shush, and gig work in the platform era, is Michelle Chihara, editor of the economics and finance section of LA Review of Books, as well as associate professor of English at Whittier College and director of the Whittier Scholars Program. 
For more about our guests and a bibliography of works mentioned in this episode, please visit MarkTwainStudies.com backslash cash there's nothing but heartbreak with a boss from hell. Nothing but heartbreak with a boss from hell. This was not apparent to me when I set out on this series a few months ago, but it has come up in nearly every episode we've done as if it will not be denied uh, that one way of framing HBO's history is as a repetition of that sort of famous manga butterfly meme in which the network is holding up a series of programs and asking the same question over and over again. Sort of, you know, sex in the city, is this feminism, right? <laughs> Girls, is this feminism? You know, hung, hacks, big little eyes, F-boy island, right? Is this feminism? And as Sarah very precisely established in LA Review uh, Books earlier this week, they're asking that same question again with House of Dragons. As you put it, the show uses my feminism instead of taking my feminism seriously. I expect we might have a lot of the same answers for where and why it feels unserious about feminism, but I wanted to start with the sort of glass half full version of the question, which is how does House of Dragon engage feminism sincerely and what does it get, if anything, at least partially right? And I'm, I'm going to hand it to Sarah first, since I know she has some sort of locked and loaded answers to this question. Well, I'll try and give a locked and loaded version, which is that the show gives a lot of airtime to women talking and a lot of airtime to women's lives. And at times it really snaps into focus around the material, messy fluid realities of women's physical experience, as well at moments, the complicated emotional compromises that women have to make as characters to live in a patriarchal world. So I think in that way, um, it was trying to do something that I can admire. Not in some other way, but I'm, I'm, I'm trying to go with the glass yeah. half full. Yeah. Like, you know, like there's not a lot of like leaky boobs in a lot of television. And I was like, yeah, props, like leaky boobs. It's a thing. It happens. Other stuff that is there, I think, is much more questionable, as I said in, in 3000 words the other day. But that's just <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I feel unprepared for this because I haven't read Sarah's piece yet and I haven't watched all of House of Dragons, but part of the reason I haven't watched it all is because my husband and I are the people who always want to be quiet while watching things. We never talk during TV. And this show has provoked me to such an extent that I can't stop talking during it. And so he doesn't want to watch it with me. <laughs> I think that it's precisely because in the way that Sarah said, the show is trying to talk to me, precisely to me, who was a really intense Game of Thrones fan the previous show who cared about the female characters and I feel like from the moment House of Dragons came on screen they were like we know we pissed you off with Daenerys so we're going to try to talk to you this time we're going to try to get you back and everything that they have tried to do in what I've seen of it just made me more mad I just it just made me so mad <laughs> that I couldn't stop talking which is really unlike me I think I could sum it up the, the cesarean and the tournament intercut with all that blood and gore and 
the thing that got me in that scene was as so much fantasy is it's kind of medieval england but not with dragons but unlike medieval realities in europe in our world there's no feminine subculture of medicine there are no midwives who are women the male patriarchy has just like taken medicine and childbirth it's already like silver federici's caliban and the witch has already somehow happened <laughs> and, you know, and the meisters have like the herbs that give you an abortion but there's there are no women there are no women who have any wisdom about childbirth. There are all these attendants in the room. One of them maybe looked Asian. I'm Asian American. I was like, oh, there's one of those. But they have no knowledge. They're just standing around while the men are like, let's cut her open. This is a new thing we've tried. I'm like, what? What what ha what is this world? What's happened? And now we have black people. We have black people who have a throne who are part of the aristocracy. And somebody on Black Twitter was like, "Uh oh, <laughs> <laughs> all the black people between this." Let's solve a racial representation problems with an implicit genocide. It's not saying anything interesting about race. It's not saying anything interesting about. I mean, it's not true. It's saying more that's interesting about gender than I think it is about race. But I couldn't get past it in that first scene. You're going to make me watch all this gore. You're going to put birth up against the... The joust. The womb is the new battlefield. Isn't that like a tagline they use at some point? With women who don't fight. Sorry, I'll shut up in just a second. But the, the whole way that this patriarchy is set up, and on the one hand, we are getting some of women's experiences here. And at the same time, they don't seem to have any of the bonds among women that you have to have to survive in a patriarchy like this. Rhaenyra and Alicent, at the beginning, they seem like they have an actual friendship, but they don't talk to each other about anything. <laughs> it's like Damon takes her out to the town and she's like, oh, wow, sex. And I'm like, because you never talked about this with any of your girlfriends. I just couldn't. I love that that was Michelle's glass half full answer, by the way. Let's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <that> version. <laughs> Sorry, Aaron. Yes, go ahead. I metaphorically threw the computer across the room when I got to the, cesare the cesarean <laughs> because we had recently had one and it was raw in a way that if it felt in service of some kind of idea, then you would want to go along. But it is so flagrantly not, right? Like they're going through the motions in all these ways you're talking about. Oh, we've heard you. That's why we have black people. But it's extremely super superficial and shallow. And it bugs me that the female characters seem constantly to be surprised they're in a patriarchy. Yes. Did you say that? I may be stealing that from you already because it's so, it's just so mind boggling that- People care about my chastity? What? That's not fair. If I were a man, we wouldn't do this. Yeah. <laughs> it's both like the most, dystopic fantasy of medieval patriarchy where it's so complete no one has ever dreamed of an outside to it there's no women working in concert to subvert it and also no one seems to know they live in a patriarchy it just speaks to the level of the depth of thought that went into kind of taking this world seriously as a as a world which is i'm not even doing the glass half full thing <laughs> i'm sorry no this is a good place to start I think one of the things you all are hitting on that I, I definitely was also perturbed by, whether 
the feminism of the show and maybe just the quality of the show improves over the course of the season and therefore maybe there is some hope for its second season and beyond. Are there any sort of redemptions, which I agree, particularly that first episode is just a kind of a travesty, an utter failure, no explanation for the combo cesarean section and joust. It's just sort of pure spectacle this week we've had all of these tributes to Sadia Hartman and scenes of subjection after 25 years and and I couldn't help but sort of watching the show and being like they are making all of the mistakes that Hartman tries to guard us against right all of the spectacular violence and sadism and brutality of oppression without sufficient attention to its banal structures. Like it's especially ironic because an actual plot line in the first several episodes is Renera saying, these tournaments are useless. I want somebody who's been in a battle. She has a clear distinction between useless violence and violence that actually forges you into something that matters. And by putting the birth scene intercut into the stupid, useless spectacle of egregious violence rather than something that matters, the show really tips its hand as to what it is trying to do. The birth is a ridiculous spectacle of strength rather than a like biological, cultural, emotional, romantic urge. I mean, I just feel like that's just right there. Like birth is not jousting. It may or may not be battling. I don't think so, but we could have that conversation, but it's definitely not a like display for status. Like what about the time jump into the, I I lost count of how many birthing scenes there are in the show, right? But one of the most prominent ones, in addition to the one in the first episode, is the sort of time jump where our first look at the adult version of Rhaenerys is while she's giving birth to Joffrey. And it is, to some extent, as you describe, a kind of display of strength. It also, to sort of counter Michelle, she's surrounded by women. What they know remains somewhat unclear, perhaps, but she is at least surrounded by women and probably self-consciously, given her mother's fate, has removed the Meister from the proceedings, right? But then she has this whole spectacle, again, of, I am going to take the baby to see the queen, display my endurance to pain, my strength, my will. And I think that's one, one of my questions was, you have these later scenes which do complicate the scenes from the first half of the season, but I'm not sure correct (laughs) the problems thereof. It's really uneven. The whole series is really uneven. And I I mean, like one problem, us bracketing the political problem, which is abiding for my ability to take pleasure in something, absolutely, is that the show is also just boring. Like it had no chemistry. The writing isn't good. The script isn't good. Like it only rarely could get its grips in me as something that I could feel about at all. And I did love that scene when Renera walks up the stairs and I liked her kind of interesting relationship with Leonor. A boy I've just had. Yes. Hold on, where are you going? She wants to see him. Now? I'm coming with you. I should hope so. Let me take him. Oh, she'll get no such satisfaction from me. Just take my arm at the least. Was it terribly painful? 
I took a lance through the shoulder once. My deepest sympathies. I'm glad I'm not a woman. That was really intense in the moment when they're like, you should be resting. And she's like, yes, I should. I'm not. That's great. Yes, like the moments when you should be resting and you can't. I know Michelle has thoughts about this are important. But then she gets up there and they do this weird race check and then nothing happens. And she just sits there and they like don't engage. Like they don't look at each other. This goes back exactly to Michelle's point about like what is happening with these two women in this household? Have they been for nine years avoiding each other so they don't have anything to say? Have they been for nine years orbiting each other with like rays of daggers of like household management? Like we don't know. Like she takes this huge long walk and then there's nothing and then they leave. And I was like, well, that is much less compelling than the parallel walk at the end when the king also walks up the stairs and he sits there and like, that's actually kind of intense. I must admit my confusion. I do not understand why petitions are being heard over a settled succession. I liked those two walks in tandem with each other. One of the things that having this conversation right now is really bringing home to me is how much I missed watching Game of Thrones, the original, and in fact, watching it with youth. <laughs> I've been thinking a lot about how representation matters, but also how shows matter. And the original Game of Thrones provided this social experience. We had watch parties at our house. You know, we had a famous one at her house there that we were talking about bringing pictures of that where we had the Game of Thrones cakes and like Ned Stark cake pops, which were vile, but wonderful. There was something about the original that depicted a world of power, but it also had people with various different relationships to that world. I mean, if you think of Tyrion's character in the original, his ability to use his identity position to make fun of power, but also his, his desire to be part of it. I mean, that character arc was so fascinating for most of the show. And I think that when you're talking about how the writing isn't as good on this show, part of what is just the threads aren't pulled through. Yeah. Violence bursts out and you're not quite sure why, but then like even out, even those two walks, because that walk, I was just like, oh, I want to talk to Sarah about this. But then it, I didn't understand why Alicet could make her do that. And then it kind of just, evaporated yeah and so the fun of really getting into the show because and i think it was when it was more faithful to george r, r. martin's world the world was so complicated it was so fun to be in it with other people yeah. i still miss the old one yeah. i missed watching you with sarah but i couldn't yeah it's possible aaron said something on twitter which i will bring up but allow him to elaborate on is that one of the problems with this show is that one of the few characters that had any intensity like a, a character who was full of desire was damon and so in a weird way it became a relief when he was on the stage and in a way that you forget that he's like a demon monster. Yeah, I mean, Matt Smith, I think, is the best actor on the cast. He just pops in scenes. And so you're happy to see him because the rest of the cast does not pop and the rest of the scenes do not pop. And like, even if he comes into the scene and strangles his wife and you don't know why, it's like, at least he's doing something unpredictable. Whereas it feels like the rest of the show is just on rails. It doesn't feel like characters doing random things in history. It feels very much like, okay, we're going to set up this and then we're going to set up this. And then we're going to have that scene. And now we're done so we can move on to the next scene. 
I enjoyed the last two episodes yes, of much the season more. because it felt like they had finally given themselves permission for things to happen. And the first eight episodes felt very much like they were scene setting for a show that they're, they're like, this is going to be five seasons long. So we don't want to rush into it. You know, we don't want to spoil things. Interesting events happen in each individual episode, but there isn't a plot that's moving forward because we're just biding time until the second to last episode when the coup happens and then the dragon fight happens that will will bring us into this sort of inevitable war. Like until those two things happen, in fact, as long as the king is alive, nothing can actually happen. As long as the king is alive, the succession plot can't begin. So they're just kind of spinning their wheels. And then as a result, I'm just like, I'm so happy when Damon, the force of chaos, wanders into the screen and does some bullshit because at least something is going to is going to be going on. I don't know if it's like he's unpredictable or that he actually has desire, a more interesting set of consistent and interesting motivations. Yeah. Someone said this on Twitter, and I haven't stopped thinking about it, that in all of these like prestige dramas, everybody has traumas and no one has desires. So we're always kind of unpeeling the story of what your secret trauma is that brings us to the present. And now we understand that why you're acting because of the trauma you had in your past. And Damon is fun to watch in some ways because this is no trauma. He's not carrying any burdens. He's just like a massive chaotic desire. And that's kind of interesting compared to all these other people who... I just don't, I don't know what they're after. I don't know how they, yeah. Yeah. Season two is going to begin where everyone is going to be reacting to their trauma of what just happened. <laughs> and that puts us on a much more kind of normal prestige drama narrative footing. So I want to go back, Aaron, to what you just said about how nothing can happen until the king dies. And on the one hand, yes, absolutely. Like in this imagination of what a story is, nothing can happen until the king dies. But we could imagine lots of other stories. Mm -hmm. And the way that this show was so profoundly uninterested in peace, the way that Viserys the Peaceful is like an insult. And the people on the council who are his advocates were like, well, we should probably talk about the grain. It's parodic how stupid they are. Nobody can listen to them. Like, that's the joke. That's the point. And what actually happens while the king lives in any world women especially have machinations and they keep going and they argue for resources and they jockey for power, especially in a place like this where the two most important people are women. The fact that the show can't see that anything significant could happen until this patriarch is out of the way is part of why none of the other desires that people might have can matter to the show. And I'm saying women because that's what the show is setting up. Like, here's this world where there's all these powerful women. What do they want? What are they doing? But in Game of Thrones, like we had like Varys, who was like, I'm going to like spy. I want information. Or even like Peter Baelish, who's like sucks, but he like wants information. He's like understands that while the king is there, the king's just like, whatever with his disease and like power is what happens on the margins around that. And that is life. And that is small things. And that's good television. Like that's, what's like, what cocktail do you want? The TikTok that was so much more rewarding than anything else. Like Sarah is referring to a viral TikTok video featuring the actors, Olivia Cook and Emma de Arce who play Renera and Allison. What's your drink of choice? And the groony. I was going to say the same thing. Bagliato. Mm. With Prosecco in it. Oh, stunning. Yeah. 
In her Los Angeles Review of Books essay, Sarah writes of this intensely fantastic interplay. Do they want each other? want to be each other. They stare and redirect, imagine delicious things in their mouths, add details that make things dirtier and more effervescent. If you had shown me that video, I would have been sure that House of the Dragons was the show of my dreams. I would have expected it to capture how the tightness and violence of patriarchy can stifle queer and feminine energy without extinguishing it. How voluptuous passions can find so many gorgeous ways, maybe not out, but at least through. That video is everything that House of the Dragon is not. Having a conversation about a cocktail is power. Let's do it, right? And Game of Thrones would never let Allison and Renera be like, what should we have for dinner? Mm -hmm. And the way that any two women who've ever argued about what we should have for dinner know that that is life. And the show doesn't know that yet. So it's not going to do anything different until it does. That really came home to me in the scene where Reyna, she brings the dragon out of the dragon pit, disrupts the coronation, and then she has this opportunity to just wipe out the entire Alicent line. And for whatever reason, chooses not to. And that moment feels like it should be loaded with a complexity of family politics, yeah. palace intrigue, yeah. right? That she has this opportunity, she chooses not to take it, and that must show something about not only her relationship to the people on the stage, but also to the people that she is presumably fleeing to, that she can't trust anyone. Or, but we really know almost nothing about her, right? She's supposed to be the kind of matriarch ghost for this entire show, the decision not to make her the successor sets up everything that follows. And yet we really don't know her at all and have no way to sort of interpret that moment, even though as spectacle, it should be, it is incredible as spectacle and it should be rich with implication. But I just didn't feel that way for me. I, I, I came out of it thinking like, why didn't she just like wipe them all out? I don't no, understand. Like, then what... we wouldn't have to look at them anymore. That might be about <laughs> What loyalty does she have to her? Like, I don't know why she should care. I did like Allison. I liked Allison, I have to say. But I think that there is a way that sense that Aaron, you were saying that the king, as long as he's there, we're just kind of waiting for the story to start is part of the theory of power being kind of thin and empty. It's like we're waiting for the baton to get passed, but we don't really know what it means. Yeah. What, what does that baton mean? Does the show think he's a good king or not? It's impossible to answer that question. Does it think peace is good? Right. You know, like maybe what you want is a kind of a milk toast king that doesn't start wars. That is what I would prefer. <laughs> it's impossible to tell whether the show thinks that's what we should prefer. And he has that moment. The king has that moment where it's before the jump in time, right? Where he's like, What will they say of thee when the histories are written? I have neither fought nor conquered, nor suffered any great defeat. Some might call that good fortune. It hardly makes a good song, does it? To be sung at feasts in a hundred years. Is it not better to live in peace than to have songs sung after you are dead? Perhaps. There is a part of me wishes I'd been tested. I often think that in the crucible, I may have been forged a different path. 
if this king is truly powerful, then part of what he can do is keep the kingdom from exploding into more violence. But the thing is, he does, right? Like the kingdom is not in violence. There isn't a civil war. They're fighting some stupid foreign war on the Stepstones or whatever. But that poisons the show's central metaphor because at the beginning, what's-her-name was passed over. So it would make sense then if he were a bad king, there would be a kind of coherent story here about how the service to patriarchy, but he's actually a pretty good king, as far as I can tell. So then there's no actual apparent damage done. And then when that gets repeated, I have no idea, like, what are we looking for in a king? Mm -hmm. What are the stakes of having it be the uncle versus the daughter right it's just all muddled because the central question of what a power should be is not looked at clearly. and Aaron, this really connects back to your point about trauma which i think is really helpful because the only thing that we see him do is stay with renera and her heirs that's the main thing that he does that's his main plot line is like walk up the stairs so he can protect the legitimacy of that line and he doesn't seem to do that because of feminism because of a desire to impose his will. He seems to do it because he feels bad about Emma. He seems to do it because of trauma rather than his own theory of power. And it's a very strange thing to have the figure of patriarchy, the king, literally the one who's there, who's like saying, I shall declare that this is my line. It's not biologically my line, but if I declare it is so, then it is so. Be so vacated of will, except guilt. Mm -hmm. Even if nominally, I think it's good that he is standing by his daughter and not throwing her over for his son. This is what my point about, I think it's using my feminism rather than taking my feminism seriously. Like it's a broad stroke. So I'm like, yeah, stay with your daughter. Don't give it over to the son. But like that doesn't make sense within the show. And we don't see anybody paying really the cost for that. He's so weak. Like anybody could have killed him at any time. Does other power want authority? Peter Baelish would kill that shit like midway through the season. Like he's dead. He's out. Let's get him out of here. Let's talk about the anxiety of influence from the previous Game of Thrones. Because I think that might be one way of maybe explaining a lot of the problems that we're talking about, particularly the problems of the first six, seven, eight episodes, right? Is that during the much maligned final season of Game of Thrones, there was a lot of talk about fan service, about the impression that some of the choices Benioff and Weiss were making seemed to be designed to delight sort of Reddit communities and cosplayers and maybe weren't as satisfying as they expected, in part because the plot felt sort of stilted and crowdsourced. And while I don't necessarily feel like Kondal and Sopacek and Claire Kilner, I, I don't feel like they've been reading message boards. I do think they are hyper familiar with the critiques of Game of Thrones, right? Yeah. And particularly the identity critiques, as we've already mentioned, right? And they are constantly looking over their shoulder and sort of being like, look, we're not doing what that show did. Look, like no sex position, no words at all, close-ups of their faces, tender caresses, synth strings. Like, <laughs> it's like, do you really expect us to congratulate you for choosing to direct your incest and statutory rape scenes like a Mel Gibson movie? <laughs> I think that this could be one of the real problems of these big budget tentpole franchises that are supposed to be the magnets for subscribers. They're so eager, so eager to please politically overdetermined 
you know, oftentimes I don't know as a critic, I kind of feel like I, I'm the stag being held still right, for the marketing <laughs> executive to sort of point the sphere and say, that, well, look, there's the heart, right? And I think this is part of the problem of how the show doesn't really get going is it feels like it has to answer for the sins of the father, right? It has to answer for the problems with the final seasons of the Benioff and Weiss show when really it, it kind of hasn't earned the opportunity. But there were things about Game of Thrones, as Michelle said earlier, that like really drew us in, even for the you know potential faults of the final seasons. Early in this season of this podcast, J.D. Connors said, one of the things you're going to find about Discovery Warner Brothers version of HBO is they're going to stop caring about prestige, they're going to stop caring about awards, and they're definitely going to start caring about critics. But this show feels like it cares a fucking hell of a lot about critics, or at least about the critics of the previous franchise. That's what I wanted to ask is like, what is this show's relationship to its reception, right? That kind of anxiety about its reception or anxiety about the influence of the previous show and its reception. I went back to watching Game of Thrones after not having watched it in quite a long time since it went off. And I came to a new appreciation of how well early Game of Thrones works. I think the late seasons can really poison you into forgetting how good it was when it was good and, and what made it good. And I, I think that's a flip side of what you're talking about, where to the extent that the writers are caught up in a critical narrative about the show, they've in many ways lost touch with what made season one of Game of Thrones work. Like season one of Game of Thrones was a mystery. Who killed John Aaron? Fundamentally, it was that and when you're waiting for things to happen, people were traveling all around the country, much more than the kind of sex position. The baseline Game of Thrones scene is a couple characters walking somewhere or a couple characters en route from one place to another. All this stuff is kind of happening. You know, I'm waving my arms to indicate the vast machinery of fate. But like all this stuff is happening out there. Meanwhile, we're sitting at a campfire having a kind of ironic conversation about the world. I think what made Game of Thrones work is that it was filled with characters who are a little bit broken or outcast or marginalized or injured or in some way disgraced, who are kind of constantly reflecting on that. That's what made it good to me. I think that's what made the drama effective. And then instead we flipped over to a show where we never fucking leave King's Landing and everybody is the power elite. These are the, the 0.0001%. Mm-hmm. And so no one has an ironic relationship to their power. No one goes anywhere. No one is in media rest of anything. Yeah. And they are the ones driving the plot. A lot of stuff happens off screen in Game of Thrones and you experience it with characters for whom it is also off screen. And that's compelling in a way that this is not. Other than the unwashed masses in the Dragon Pit, the closest we get to the proletariat in House of Dragons is like Kristen Cole. Well, there's the puppet show. Go to a puppet show before they have incest sex. Come on. (laughs) Just to say, Aaron, that goes exactly to what Michelle was saying earlier about Tyrion, who is like the perfect middle figure there. In Game of Thrones, even the people within power have complicated relationships to power. And they they understand the power structure that they are in and they understand their position in it. They understand precisely what freedom that gives them and what freedom it doesn't allow them. Yeah. I don't know if it's crowdsourced or just like the writer's room is, has got the critiques of 
Game of Thrones running around in their heads. And that seems obvious to me. I feel like at times I could feel them trying to apologize to me for what they did to the characters at the end of Game Mm -hmm. of Thrones. The show doesn't have a theory of power. And that makes it sound like I have a deeper critical insight than I think I do. But I think the show feels like nothing can happen until the king, because it doesn't understand how the king operates. It doesn't really know. And that's especially infuriating because this show is obsessed with power mm-hmm. in a way that Game of Thrones wasn't. Like Game of Thrones, power was everywhere, but it wasn't so focused on like, what is the state? What is the central truth of the state in the way that this is? This is like, there is no story if we're not talking about succession and the question of what the state is. And so then for the show to like not have anything to say about that, it's like, well, you, you're the one who wanted to talk about this. Like, why don't you have an answer? Hold the meeting. Come on. <laughs> Which is why, like, all the small council scenes are so boring compared to the amazing small council scenes in Game of Thrones when there's, like, yes. so many things that can get done in just a glance. Whereas in this, like, nothing gets done until, oh, did something did happen offstage. There was a conspiracy. Otto Tower turns out, does have desires. And now it's all in motion and Alicent, bless her, wandered in from her pre-Raphael lot painting and is like, what? The men schemed? And it's like, <laughs> oh, have you been alive? Yeah. Why did we go for it? I almost like that about her because she has an excuse. I do really like Alison. You know, like they, they, they have to build a character for which that kind of innocence makes any sense. I think this might be another reason why the Damon Matt Smith character really pops is like the characters in the previous Game of Thrones. Like he has an understanding of sovereignty, which means that whenever his schemes fall short, he immediately accepts this is the political landscape in which I reside. I have to reposition myself and start over seeking my lusts, my desires, my ambitions. Whereas almost all the other quick characters, like you said, they just go on whining. Like, if I were a man, you're my husband, I'm your wife. Like, there's all this complaining about the injustice of an openly unjust system. Right. Which goes back to Aaron's point, like, why would she even have this idea that it's not fair? Right. Right. <laughs> Where did that come from? I mean, and I feel like as somebody who read a lot of novels sold at Scholastic Book Fair set in castles for eight-year-old girls, that the plot of those is, I want to be a princess and powerful. And like a character from those, which I love, wandered into this actually like fleshed out political environment and just did some foot stomping like she was going to be on Good Morning America and be like, this is a girl power show. It's really empowering. And like, that's not a, like, Renera would know what she can do mm-hmm. and she would do it mm-hmm. or she would be stupid, <laughs> which she's not supposed to be. Like it wants yeah. us to root that's- for her, even though she seems to have no understanding of the world in which she is in. This is all the more strange, given that the intervention of Song of Ice and Fire, a Game of Thrones, broadly speaking, was to say, okay, let's do high fantasy. and then halfway through you realize like, oh no, the high fantasy characters that believe in the ideology, they get killed first because that gets you killed. Ned Stark is not the hero of this. Ned Stark does not survive. None of the Starks survive. And you're left with all of these other people who have a more knowing and ironic relationship to power. So like the entire intervention of Game of Thrones as a genre piece was to disturb this. I mean, in what sense are we even watching something that is related to Game of Thrones? Because it isn't doing that same thing. It's not interested in that same process. This may be almost too obvious, 
But the original Game of Thrones, you had winter is coming. Yeah. There was something outside of the succession and the throne that really mattered. And the whole original question was, are these people going to be able to get it together because they have to work together against this outside threat? And so the whole world was founded on this idea that there was something more important than who sat in the chair. Mm -hmm. And part of the weakness of the end of the original was that not only did it take characters who had been more interesting and been driven by something else than the purelist for power and kind of reduced them to that, but it also just kind of kneecapped that whole question. It was like, and then they're gone. <laughs> and it actually doesn't matter. The question of whether you guys will work together, we're just gonna silent it. And I thought that was part of the way that the show undercut itself at the end. But mm -hmm. then now we're here and we're back and why do we care who's in the throne? The prince, the prince who is promised. It's so important that this knife has a prince who is promised prophecy. It's so, something is incredibly important that will result in the prince who is promised. Meanwhile, I have no idea who the prince who is promised was. And I watched the whole Game of Thrones, right? Like they lost the thread over the course of those seven seasons that this show is trying to tell us is the most important thing connecting them. Yeah. It's just wild. Was there a prince who was promised? I remember wondering about that. I remember that being held out, but I, I guess it was probably John. I don't yeah. know. They just kind of forgot about it and moved on. One thing that I always thought was really complicated about the Game of Thrones shows is on the one hand, winter is coming and that's the sort of end game plot. But the thing it was so good at is the game itself, these multiple textures inhabiting a world. And when I first started reading the very first book, I was 100 pages in and I was like, there's no way this guy can end this thing. Like, I am not, I am not going to read this until I know what happens to Arya's dog. And when he, like, I was just like, I'm out. But then then they made it into a TV show and I was coming and coming at it. It was like, this should be on air for 35 years, I want to follow this like ER or Friends or like Grey's Anatomy, just like interesting people in an interesting world with funky magic. Like this could go on forever. They had to like bring this climacticness to it to fit in the prestige seriality drama, which was a little bit antithetical to what was appealing about those characters. And this show, I think, as Aaron says, has such a narrower scope like it's all about who can claim the throne in this one very narrow way. And it has no texture, which Game of Thrones was so appealing in creating. And just think about how like, how many characters got killed in Game of Thrones? And then you'd start watching the next season, you'd be like, oh yeah, this show is still going on. The Starks are all massacred and yet I don't care. There's enough other stuff going mm -hmm. on. But if in episode nine or 10 or whatever it was, if the queen who wasn't, had used her dragon to flame all those people, show's over. Right. There's nothing else, right? It's not a, a a woven tapestry of many threads. It's like one thread. Repeatedly, and... I felt the costumes were quite poor. Also, they <laughs> like they looked <laughs> shitty. I mean, they wig. I kind of liked that the wigs were bad, but the clothes weren't. I mean, disappointing. Disappointing. Sarah provides a really direct entree into one of the primary questions I wanted to raise, which is the reason why this feels different 
to some extent because of the way the landscape of televisual media has changed. As you said, there was a real urge to turn Game of Thrones, the original, into a Sopranos, Breaking Bad, Mad Men, like to have it fit the pulp to prestige pipeline that HBO had mastered over the preceding decade, or two decades, really. But that was in the HBO Go days, right? Now we're in the HBO Max days, right? We're in, into the streaming wars. And really, like, what HBO needs now is for Game of Thrones to become what you hoped it would be originally, that it could go on forever and that it can compete alongside the Star Wars universe and the Marvel Cinematic Universe and eventually probably the Stranger Things universe and the Tolkienverse, right? That we are now in a phase where these franchises are the kind of nights right and the platforms are the houses right and we are seeing these fantasies as forces of conquering and whoever builds the best stable of franchises of sort of fictional worlds will own the next age of media and that age during which we are likely to be increasingly isolated and thus perhaps increasingly dependent upon those platforms not just to while away our lockdown hours but to sort of substitute for sociality which as Michelle said right that's what we're missing maybe in part and you also mentioned this at the beginning of your piece Sarah there isn't a kind of conversation there isn't a kind of socializing element around House of Dragons or maybe around any of their shows like there was around The Sopranos this kind of like the water cooler shows of the late 90s and 2000s right I want I want to talk about this like where does House of Dragons sort of fit and to what extent are the problems with House of Dragons to some extent dictated by HBO or Warner Brothers Discovery trying to sort of figure out how to make something that won't just last for seven seasons, but that will multiply and, you know, be part of a, a franchise that can continue holding and drawing subscribers potentially for decades as the streaming wars, you know, play out just as the Game of Thrones does. Just a small thing to say, if that's what they're trying to do, though, why didn't they have a bigger tapestry? Like, just like, I just don't get it. Like, it just seems like they just didn't do a, like I could be critical and like theorize, but I just feel like they did a bad job. Well, wasn't part of it that they had a bunch of Game of Thrones things and this is the one that actually didn't get canceled? Yeah, but I mean, it's confusing, right? Like, why is there not like six different kingdoms to introduce a whole bunch of characters to have spinoffs on? Mm -hmm. And I don't really know, I, I really don't know. But it's it that's baffling to me. I think the problem just comes down to the fact that Game of Thrones was good because George R. R. Martin wrote a good source text. And they did a good job of adapting it. You know, lots of other people brought value into it, but essentially so much of what made it powerful was the original source text. And I think this source text is not very good. I hear everything you're saying, Matt, about like this this sort of narrative of the different streaming monarchs that are fighting each other with their 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 champions but like i also just think that what that has allowed everyone to forget is that you actually need a good story yeah. and if we want to talk about like in in the emails we were passing around i was just like i've been watching andor andor is really good these other shows are not very good and the difference is that tony gilroy is really good at making stories i don't know how much more complicated it is than that and I think a lot of the kind of business drama pulls us away as critics from essentially these are stories. And essentially the problem with House of Dragons is that 
it's just not a very good story. They didn't do a good job of it. Not just us. It's not just that the critics are being pulled away, right? It's that the people who are making it are being pulled yeah. away. That, that is what I would say, is that Absolutely. what it feels like to me with House of Dragons and Rings of Power is that everybody who's involved in the creation of those shows is thinking about them in terms of their franchise value. Mm-hmm. Right? Whereas I would agree with you, even though Andor is also part of that streaming wars ongoing business drama, it doesn't feel that way. And it has no good source text, right? It is making it up from within what is actually kind of shitty source text. Mm-hmm. I'm only halfway through Ring of Power and I would watch a bunch of shows about a bunch of those characters just to say that. Michelle, I really like it. I, I don't think it's simple what makes a story good and what makes a story bad. And I think that you're absolutely right, Erin, that it's simple to say as soon as they kind of spun off the George R. R. Martin world, they didn't get what made it good. Mm-hmm. And so they made it back. <laughs> George R. Martin doesn't understand it either because he wrote this too. Just to amplify your point. The way that we were invested in the characters, the show was very smart at the beginning about toying with us as an audience. And this is what I was writing about back in the day in 2013. They were toying with us and making us think about how we were invested in different characters. And this show, it still feels like it's trying to toy with me, but I don't think that it understands why I'm invested in characters and why I'm not. I still think it really matters that we have shows to talk about and that we can get invested in. I wouldn't have done this podcast and watched all of this, right? If I didn't think that it does matter that we think about how women's experiences are represented, right? Because then we talk about it and that's part of how we process our own experiences. I, I wanted to follow up with that. You you offered up Andor as the sort of counterpoint in our exchange, Aaron, and I went out and watched it and I utterly agree with you. It, it just feels like a, a far superior piece of storytelling. And I guess I would like to ask, like, why? Like, what is it doing well that these other franchises maybe aren't doing as well, or at least not at the moment, not yet, right? There's, as you said, there's some potential for Rings of Power to develop. There's a potential that the last couple of episodes of House of Dragons are an omen of better things to come. I don't want to give up on them altogether, right? Maybe part of the nature of the franchise era is that franchises are going to rise and fall and be good for a while and then not good for a while, and they're just going to stick with us in somewhat unsettling ways. But like, what is it that works about Andor? I want to say real quickly, if you think House of Dragon is going to be good, I invite you to read the Wikipedia entries on what happens next, because it's all kinds of bad. I have avoided that, just to be fair, yeah. <laughs> anyway, it's very unfun. So I think Andor is good because it builds a world. That is fundamentally what happens, is that you start off with this guy, but it's well constructed in that like each three episode cycle is kind of a semi self-contained story and each of them kind of has a genre. The original one is guy gets in trouble and has to get out of it noir and then there's a gorilla camp heist section and then now it's like a prison sequence and you know each one has just a coherence. There's a, the structure makes a lot of sense and builds cumulatively on itself. The Force is happening off stage. Darth Vader is somewhere out there. The Skywalkers are doing something out there. But we're kind of doing stuff in the interstices while that's happening, right? Like the show is following sort of normal people experiencing what the Empire is like, just experiencing what an Imperial prison is like, just experiencing what it means to build kind of Maoist guerrilla movement. Talk to me like that. Revolutions are expensive. I've warned you when we started. You told me we were building a network. 
Has anyone ever made a weapon that wasn't used? The network's been built. It's up. It grows or it dies. You realize what you set in motion? Palpatine won't hesitate now. Exactly. We need them to overreact. You can't be serious. The Empire has been choking us so slowly we're starting not to notice. The time has come to force their hand. People will suffer. That's the plan. Andor shows you why the Empire had to go. You know, you don't hate the Empire nearly as much in any other Star Wars, I think, as when you see, like, what an Imperial prison is and what the prison industrial complex that the Empire is building. Seven levels of factory, seven rooms per level, seven tables per room, seven men, each table. Off program! Back to work! Listen up. It's a 12-hour shift. Productivity is encouraged. Evaluation is constant. Sick, injured, you talk to me. Problems with another inmate, I will know before you do. Losing hope, your mind, keep it yourself. Don't ever slow up my line. It is really dark and really scary in a way that I find stands aside from everything else that Star Wars has ever done. And I think it's that freedom from the source text that allowed them to write a good source text. Mm -hmm. House of Dragons is a historical text that is apparently a riff on how historical texts are written. George R. R. Martin has said it's not accurate. It's supposed to be kind of about how historians mistell the chronicles. And they just converted that right into a story. That might be the fundamental flaw of it. To create a good story, you have to know what you're doing and why you're doing it. And in a lot of ways, it doesn't feel like they did. Whereas Tony Gilroy knew what he was doing. He was like, great, I don't have to worry about the force at all. I'm going to tell this yeah. wholly other story and it's going to be good for kind of standalone right. reasons. It's not motivated by the existing fandom clamoring for this right. new show, right? Yeah. The thing I want to say about that is like, I don't know that I want fandoms to be the villain here because fandoms yeah, are good no. at anything. It's really caring about a world and like fleshing it out more and knowing it better. I was just reading Kristen Warner's great LARB essay about Game of Thrones and soap operas, right? Like in fandoms, it's real for them. And I want to be a clamoring fan. That's all I want. In order for me to be invited into that, the show needs to take its own world seriously. So I think Aaron's exactly right. What here is possible and not? What is at stake and what is not? So there's like the world. And then similarly for us interpretively, there's engaging in a meaningful way. And I say this as a genre fan with whatever genre it is you're working at. What are the very real pressures that shape our fan experience to make things matter or not, right? To create our feelings by either fulfilling an expectation or challenging an expectation and have the pressure of us as readers matter in a serious way to what develops in a character's reality. And I felt like House of the Dragons just didn't achieve that. Like, I don't know if they're not good at being fans. I mean, I remember writing recaps of shows where I was like, the writing here is terrible, but fortunately, Sophie Turner can do amazing things with her eyebrows, and I'm just with her the whole time. So it's like they couldn't quite get the characters to really care. The script wasn't good. They didn't care about the world. At every level, it was just mediocre. And I'm not going to watch a horrible miscarriage scene, or I did, because of this podcast, really. <laughs> <laughs> 
like my time is precious. Me to invest, you have to show at some level that you care. Yeah, I don't want to make the fandoms the villains either. Although I would say this desire for escapism is embedded within a troubling politics in our real world <laughs> that maybe the fandoms are complicit in to some extent. Yeah, escapism process of its reality. Yeah. Like this is a great topic, but I do my yeah. political work, and then I only want to read novels where people wear velvet dresses and ride horses. I right. don't think that makes me right. bad at politics. I totally agree with you that the problem is not that the fandom wants more Game of Thrones. The problem is that the people making the Game of Thrones for them did not seem to care that much about why they wanted it. Their want, their fanaticism was only taken seriously as consumer demand. But I, I also want to follow up the same question that I asked Aaron, but since you expressed a kind of desire to defend Rings of Power, what is working in that show? that you did not necessarily see in House of Dragons. So I'm only halfway through. My kids are too scared, but my husband doesn't. It's too earnest for my husband. So I'm stuck between fear and earnestness. What was the moment when they really got me? Like there was two, like when the cool midwife character and the elf, I can't remember their names. There's like the hole in the floor and there's something under there. And then he's like down in the cavern. Yeah. This was Kieran's home, and Hannah, his wife, was Hannah. This was no ground shake. Someone dug this passage. Something. Men did not do this. Go. Warn your people. You're not coming with me. I must follow the passage the other direction. You don't know what's down there. That is the reason I must go. Like that was the moment when my kid got out and I was like, yes, what is down there? I want to know. Similarly, when Galadriel gets pulled back up on the raft and then like there's the battle guy. I'm just giving you accounts of my fan experience that felt like they mattered to me. It's the guy who's going to become the famous king. Aaron, did you watch it? Do you know? Aaron, I watched it, yeah. The guy who's with Galadriel on the raft. Help. Haldor. But he's becoming something famous. But when he like gets suddenly into this amazing battle scene and he's like so good at fighting and he holds a guard's arm against a corner and slams it so it breaks. I don't want any trouble. <laughs> a bit late for that, isn't it? I believe it is. <laughs> Please. Don't do this. <laughs> Why not? No man! The fact that he had that capacity to violence mattered so much to me. And all of a sudden, everything that had happened previously, I was like, he could have been doing that and he was doing this other thing. I saw him as somebody who was making fleshed out decisions about how to interact mm -hmm. with his world. Yeah. And it made me interested in my own allegiance to him or not, in the way that it was very hard in anything of House of the Dragon to be interested in whether or not I was on their side because they didn't seem to stand for anything. The violence matters as more than spectacle. Yeah, but also just like the caretaking, like when the little not quite hobbits are like taking care of the giant guy, I was like, oh, mm -hmm. and he hurt his ankle. Oh no, can they like get across the mountains and like stars and flowers? It's like, this is great. It's beautiful. There's no doubt about that. It's incredibly beautiful. Yeah. yeah.
you're halfway through a story that actually has some like big twists. I mean, so it's very hard to like engage with that. Yeah. I mean, I don't mind spoilers. I will say that somebody I randomly saw on Facebook had something like, I can't believe Galadriel's story arc. And I was like, oh no. But I do want to say one other thing about the community thing though, which I'll try and say quickly. Phil Masiak, our friend and editor at LARB, had to rewrite my whole lead because my assumption was that no one was watching House of the Dragon. And he's like, no, 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 many people are. You're wrong. And I was like, oh, I, no one I know. No one's talking to me about it. A thing that occurred to me is that I have like very aggressive social media blockers. I very rarely go online at all because... Those places aren't nice to be. Places that used to be fun places of exchange are not anymore. I just wanted to say that is like, there's another part of the media universe that has really shifted. Aaron and I had a, like an enjoyable Twitter conversation on Monday about House of the Dragons. And I was like, I miss Aaron. This is fun. But as much as I miss Aaron, I was like, I'm not going to go into this hellscape where people are yelling about women having breakfast in their garden with the husband, like whatever. <laughs> Maybe I'm old. Cause I do feel like people have a really nice time talking on TikTok, which I have, I'm not on. But maybe if I were on TikTok, television would be fun again. Even a bad show. I don't know. I'm 46. It's also about to get much worse because- uh, Maybe he'll shut man. it down. Yeah. I don't know that it could get worse. Half of my Twitter usage is in group chats. Yeah. Where you like create mm -hmm. self-contained spaces. Or... I think that trend is widespread, maybe more so in academia than elsewhere. You know, as somebody who has access to the back end of the Mark Twain Studies website, one of the things that we have seen dramatically over the last couple of years is we used to get like a huge portion of our traffic from Facebook and Twitter. That has remarkably changed. Our traffic has not changed. In fact, it's gone up. But instead, we are getting it from Messenger and Slack mm -hmm. and course management systems and, and email. As people link less and less through the main social platforms, they are linking through other places. And I presume primarily through group chats. Well, now I just feel left out because I don't know where those group chats mm -hmm. are. Somebody invite me to a group chat. <laughs> Michelle and I are in the group chat, but we run a text text That's different. I don't know. It's a group chat. So Michelle, be our platform capitalism analyst here. This has been the season of tent polls and also of quarterly earnings reports and bragging about viewership numbers. And what do we take away from the ballyhoo around this set of franchise shows to tell us about the next phase of the streaming wars of the platform eras? There's a sense that we are in for a streamlining in the streaming wars. You used the metaphor earlier that these are going to be like the houses and the war is coming, right? We're all doing succession plots because it's unclear. I think that the period of expansion that brought us a lot of wonderful TV is going to end or is ending. Actually, J.D. Connor in something that he wrote that's going to come out on LARB was talking about the Marvel franchises as there was kind of an older period in film where it was movie as authorship and then it moved to cinema as event. There's all this surge and all this change happening in how cinema functions and how these things function as events. What kind of events are we going to be interested in after the pandemic? How is movie distribution going to operate? Is it going to become an event that happens online and in a theater at the same time? What are we, how, what are we going to pay for? I think there's a lot of flux right now. We don't know what the event is going to be moving forward. Platforms are changing. Some of them are going to disappear. Some of them are going to change. But I don't think we're in the next phase yet. <laughs> my, my own feelings about it are that I feel that I already missed 
the golden age of streaming TV. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but that could be just me and my own isolation on Twitter. I'm afraid of Twitter. <laughs> I don't want to be there, but I feel like I have to be. Sarah's shaking her head at me like, you don't have to be there. <laughs> no, I'm just that. scared too. I'm like, it sounds too <laughs> I don't go. I really don't go. Like every time I tweet something, I'm scared that it's the wrong thing. Like I'm not reading the room because the room is always angry. <laughs> What I really love about the conversation we've had is how repeatedly it has come back to the kind of revelation that these things that we often watch more or less in a dark room, in a dark theater, right, cinema, television, that don't really require us to be with others are nonetheless driven by social experience. Our appreciation of television, our appreciation of these franchises depends upon us building community out of them in some way, shape, or form, whether that's through watch parties or through Twitter and Facebook threads and conversations or through group chats or whatever. Like The function requires it to also have a social space to sit on top of it in some ways, whether that's a virtual space or a material space and that I think is really speaks to the kind of urgent moment where forms of sociality are being disrupted just as the mass cultural landscape is being disrupted and their relationship to one another seems to be kind of broken at least that feels like to me right and that might be part of being in a you know small town far removed from my uh, former friends with tiny kids eating up my time and you know I'm watching a lot of Paw Patrol and Dora the Explorer and stuff like that. The feeling that something is going wrong on social media is deeply intertwined with feel that the change of how we consume television and cinema is also in flux. All the aspects of the different economies that are linked through these platforms and, and distribution systems are in flux. So the way writers get paid is in flux. The way people pay for the streaming, how many platforms they pay for, whether they'll go to movies, all of that is in flux. The way the movies get made, you know, who's doing the CGI work. So there's labor currents that are mm -hmm. hitting the distribution currents that are hitting the platforms, who owns the platforms, how they exploit labor, all that is changing. So it's kind of exciting, but very unclear to me. I think it'd be really hard to make any predictions right now about what's going to happen next. What I find depressing about the present is the way the studios and the, the platforms have figured out that as long as you are making a new story out of an old successful IP, you will make a lot of money. Yeah. The Fuller House Maxim. And I don't think that was always as clear. You know, not so long ago, there was this idea that like, we'll have to do something new. We have to, we have to find like a new thing that the, the market doesn't already have. Like the early history of HBO is all about like, okay, HBO, we have a, yeah. a cowboy show. Like, okay, now we need a gangster show. Okay. Now we need a Rome show. You know, like there, there was a, there was a way in which they understood that you had to have something new for the marketplace. We've kind of reached a moment now where at the level of corporate decision-making, there is actually not a good reason to go for good story rather than just like recycling old IP into new forms because House of the Dragon has made gobs of money. The Star Wars shows that I have not watched that sound like they're awful or I've started and not continued with, you know, like The Mandalorian. Oh, I like that. What was the, there was one after that that was kind of, everyone was saying it was just like The Mandalorian. Obi-Wan. Obi-Wan. 
makes the Phantom Menace look like Irma Vep. But I watched Boba Fett. My wife and I got hooked on it somewhat surprisingly. It's not our usual kind of thing. And I found it actually incredibly engaging. Yeah. Well, so I could be completely off base, but it seems to me, because people are not watching Andor. Mm -hmm. They did watch the shows that were based on familiar Star Wars characters, right? Right. You know, and so if you're Disney and you're looking at that, you're like, oh, the answer clearly rather than get an auteur get get like a brilliant writer like tony gilroy to build this thing out that's new and fresh we actually just need to keep finding a new character that's familiar and get any old person to write it and we'll make more money doing that and i think they're right yeah well that's actually part of cinema moving to event like that's part of what is being described there is that the universe exists and within that you have events the auteur and the quality of the show matters less or matters in different ways mm-hmm. because it, what we're looking for is an event that we can all talk about to focus us all, but we're not actually willing as the economy of the situation changes, we're not willing to invest in a new universe. Well, that's fucking dark. Game of Thrones, everyone was watching it and it was good. Mm-hmm. I feel like the thing everyone is watching is often not the best thing that's on right now. Well, and I think that the original writers, Benny Off and Weiss, may have thought that they were auteurs in a way that they turned out not to be, and HBO is still just invested in the IP. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, people like things because they like to be a part of things, and often they like things that like compel them. I don't know. I want to say that, but the non sequitur I wanted to throw in this dialogue in terms of event viewing, and I say this, and also in terms of labor flows and disruptions and ethics and exploitation is the upcoming World Cup, mm-hmm. which I know is totally different. But as somebody who likes soccer fine, but loves appointment viewing, like the stranger time a show is on, the more excited I am to get up to watch it. And the way that World Cup seems to deliver this thing that this year, particularly because of how it's in Qatar, seems just like the ultimate nadir of what we'll watch. And yeah. I don't have anything to say about that, except that I'm really ambivalent about how much I'm going to watch World Cup. It's going to be a monocultural moment built upon literal enslavement. It's pretty, yeah, it's pretty incredibly fucked up. Yeah. Yeah. To Michelle's point is that like, no matter how good Mark Zuckerberg makes the metaverse, nobody's going to want to spend any fucking time in it. But no matter how bad these shows are, people want to spend time in the galaxy, in Middle Earth, in Westeros, in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, right? Like that seems very much to me the draw, right? Is that these worlds are to some extent built and no matter how haphazard the portals are into them, people want to go back. There seems to be like an endless appetite, which again, I do think is built on top of the desperation and precarity of our actual lives. But it, it maybe it doesn't matter. The storytelling maybe doesn't matter so much. I really believe that it's okay to want to escape and that we we use cultural products and the sociality that we build around them. A word that people have been using on podcasts is parasocial relationships, the kind of relationship that you have with podcast host or, or a show. I think they really matter to people. And I think that we process the difficult parts of our life, you know, whether winter is coming, we process those through shows and it does matter. And I think communal spaces that are built around shared cultural experiences matter a great deal. 
you know, the movies famously used to be recession-proof industries because people went to the movies when times were hard. And um, matters. It's just not always clear how and why. And I don't think we should be nostalgic about authorship in a simple way. Everything is changing about the way these shows come out, but that doesn't mean, you know, Andor is still good. <laughs> I haven't seen it, but I believe you, and I would totally watch it with you. You're going to love it. Yeah. As it maybe, I don't know if this is a post trick, but I was talking to a truly amazing colleague of mine who is really involved in fan writing cultures as a participant, like not as a scholar, like straight up as she writes stuff. And not only does she write stuff, she binds books of fan fiction for a part of a fan fiction bookbinder club exchange. And I was like, you are giving me hope for the future. The thing is, is the worse that the show is, the better the fan writing is. People love a failed storyline because of just like the incredible huh. opportunity for creativity. And this is not a world that I yet know how to be in, but it's like, she's showing me these books. Like it's real. It's like literally like she's like marbled the end papers by hand. It has that level of significance, both as an intensely affective experience and as books. To amplify Michelle's point about this strange tenacity of the way that we come to love and understand each other through even failed mass cultural productions is, is something that's very compelling to me. You know, Sarah, you and I wrote about Game of Thrones when it was going through its worst years, yeah. right? <laughs> you may have preceded me, but like my entire experience of writing for LARB about Game of Thrones was just constant complaints about it. <laughs> That's the thing that makes watching a bad show, like watching a bad show alone, you've played yourself, but watching <laughs> a bad show as part of a conversation with other people, delightful, right? It's, yeah. it's, a, it's a wonderful experience. <laughs> well, it's exactly what happened with House of Dragons this week. It's right. Like Sarah said, she watched it. She, she published her review and we were all like, well, you know, there's somebody to talk to it about. That's you know, we want we want to belong in that conversation. We want to provide an interlocutor, right? That, and I think you're absolutely right. This is this is necessary. Maybe in particular now that I do strongly believe so much of the franchise stuff is going to be really putrid over <laughs> the next several years. Right? I'm not promising to watch it all. Not that I want to end on that note. Let's do it again. More about TV. Let's do it. Again. Yeah. Go for it. Let's watch some more TV. I, I, just for the people walking at home, all of everybody's dogs have been subtle and enjoyable appearances in this, minus staring at me in great disappointment at this moment. So with more dogs, more pets in House of the Dragon. Come on. Sorry. Yeah. I do like the dragon business. I know. It's true. Yeah. More pets. More pets in television. Maybe that's the winter is coming moment that you've been waiting for, Michelle, right? At the very end, we have this moment where the dragon asserts his own autonomy, right? Like, I'm going to... It was amazing. I had real feelings about that. I had real feelings about basically everything in the last episode. So kudos. I think the last episode is the closest thing to a theory of a state. Yes. That the moment the moment you're alluding to. Okay, so I will now make sure I haven't... It doesn't undo your point. Because, okay. <laughs> because they haven't had that until that point. Like it just, it sort of emerges and you're like, oh. Does they have a fire map? Come on, like fire map, amazing. Like, and they keep using it. They don't just be like, here's something cool. Let's kill it. As they had done every episode. Fire map. Well, yeah, so I do feel like I'm still vaguely being played 
on my feminism and the dragons, but I'm still, I'm true, I'm here for the dragons, so I will, I will now go watch the final episode. <laughs> that was Michelle Chihara, Sarah Mesley, and Aaron Bain on that season. For more about this episode, please visit marktwainstudies.com backslash cashdragons. This has been the finale episode of our sixth season on HBO from Pulp to Prestige. I hope you've enjoyed it. There are three American Vandal series currently in production, as well as a couple special episodes, so you won't have to wait too terribly long for more content on this feed, though I don't know exactly what topic we'll be turning to next. In the meantime, if you enjoy the American Vandal podcast, please consider writing us a review on your preferred platform, as well as subscribing. For the last time, here's the Snarlin' Yarns with Let's Go Fish. Sister, don't you care too much? Uh huh. Oh, oh. I don't go fishing off the company pier, cause you know where that'll get you, dear. I don't go fishing off the company pier, there's nothing but heartbreak where the boss from hell. Nothing but heartbreak where the bars from hell
nothing to do. There's nothing but heartbreak with a boss from hell. Nothing but heartbreak.